Hello and welcome to another Be Your Own Loud podcast presented by us here at Proudmouth. I'm Matt Halloran, your host. This show has a very simple foundation to meet amazing people who have risen above the noise, who are unapologetically themselves and have embodied being their own loud. Using these interviews as inspiration, our purpose is to help you amplify your voice to become the subject matter authority you were meant to be. Be Your Own Loud. Well, hello, everybody. This is Matt Halloran, of course, your friendly neighborhood podcasting expert. I'm really excited because we have the opportunity to play a podcast that I was on. I had an opportunity to talk to Steve Odie a lot more about who we are, what we do, and really what motivates us here at Proudmouth. And we just thought it would be a lot of fun to share. So I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Traveling Optimist podcast. And my guest today is Matt Halloran. Matt, how are you? I'm spectacular, man. Thanks for having me on your show, brother. And where are you based, just to, for the audience? So I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but I'm the co-founder of a company out of Oshawa, Ontario. Great. Okay. Well, first of all, Kalamazoo has got to be up there with probably one of the coolest names I've ever heard. And it, it's it's kind of, it reminded me of the, um, I don't know, uh, one of those films that um, with, uh, you know, some of those old time Westerns and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. In fact, if you if, if your listeners want to Google, uh, I Got a Gal in Kalamazoo is an amazing song that was in like the, the 30s. There was a music video it was featured in a film. Um, yeah, I live in a town that it's really hard to, to forget the name. So. <laughs> no, absolutely. It sounds so cool. So look, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I mean, we've got um, a, a sort of a, a mutual friend, Kelly Cardenas, and um, I listened to your conversation with him a few weeks ago and, and hence why we've kind of hooked up, but there were some really interesting things that you talked about. And um, one of the things that, you know, I was interested in is really just getting to deep dive a little bit more about your backstory and, and sort of grow. It's, uh, it is a Midwest. We would class where you, where you live. Absolutely. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. So what was it like growing up in the Midwest as a, as a, as a kid? And um, you know, what did you sort of, what did you get up to? A lot of no good. So, um, so something I didn't share on, on Kelly's show, mostly because we, I don't think we really, really had time. So I'm going to pick up. So those people should probably listen to some of that, but, um, so my, my parents got divorced when I was seven and before I was seven, I lived in nine different States. Uh, and so, uh, and I found out later in life that the reason Steve, that that was the case was because my father embezzled money from hotels. And, uh, I, I didn't know this until I was probably in my mid twenties. Um, so I was the actual latchkey kid. We literally had a key that hung around my neck. Uh, my mom worked all the time, single mother from nine until she remarried when I was 13. And man, I was up to no good. Uh, anything I could do to get myself, and it was all about attention, right? I mean, that's what happens when you're a little kid and you don't have anybody around as you do things. And I would just get in trouble because then I would get, you know, my aunt's attention, my brother's attention, family's attention. And so I started smoking cigarettes when I was probably eight. Uh, Marlboro Reds, we used to steal them from uh, my neighbor's mother. We used to go back behind a drainage ditch and look, try to look cool. I mean, that was the whole idea, right? It was stupid as hell. Um, you know, things to, you know, dumpster diving, uh, you know, taking things out of department stores, dumpsters, and then reselling them. I mean, I've been hustling since I was knee high to a grasshopper, yeah. which is by the way, a very Midwestern 
uh, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, Hasta, you're an entrepreneur before you even knew it. I was, and I used to get in a lot of trouble, Steve. So one of the my favorite stories is. I had a GI Joe guy. So GI Joe was really big when I was a kid. And, uh, and I convinced one of my friends that the GI Joe guy I had was worth more. So this was like a $4 toy than the Cobra bomber, which was like a $30 toy. And so I traded my figure for him and I came home with the Cobra bomber. I'm proud, right? I'm like, dude, I just, yeah, look what I got. I negotiated, you know, I was like eight, nine, maybe nine years old. My mom made me take it back because it was interesting, Steve, because so here's the thing. I believe you can use optimism and persuasion both positively and negatively, right? I think it's a superpower that some of us have. Yeah. My dad used it for negative and my mom saw this ability to influence uh, that my dad had and he used it negatively. She was afraid I was going to go down the same path. So dude, she cut me off right at the beginning. Look, you have a strength. And of course, we didn't call it superpowers back then or gifts. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the strength and you need to check it at the door for your life. And yeah. dude, at like nine years old, that was a huge life lesson that I think have shaped me big time since. So she was sort of saying, you've got a choice. You're, you know, you don't want to make that. You don't want to make the wrong choice. I don't want to make the wrong choice. And I, I mean, I, I didn't feel at that time. And of course I was really mad at my mom, uh, for making the wrong choice, but did I swindle the kid out of, you know, $26 worth of value? I totally did. And I knew what I was doing. Um, and so from that day forth at nine years old, I have made a conscious effort to only use whatever the hell this is to help people really live a better life. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And from an early age, actually recognizing that or, or actually respecting what your, your parents have, or your parent has said, um, and then going down that road is and taking uh, and making a, a physical choice of, of, of not going down the route that she didn't want you to go down. Actually, it's quite tricky for a nine-year-old because what you want to do as a nine-year-old, you want to do is, and, and leading up to your teens and early twenties is probably do the opposite of what your parents say you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's interesting because I really rebelled in a different direction. So my, my, my parents were, uh, when my mom remarried to my stepfather, who became the father figure of my life, they were both very liberal. Right. And so now, mind you, uh, liberal in the States is very different than liberal anywhere else. We're considered very moderate compared to other people who consider themselves liberal. But I really went in a different direction, Steve. So I, I became a Reagan conservative, which I really just did it because I like to dress up and wear ties and carry a briefcase to school and girls dug it, to be honest. That was a huge component of it. Um, but I didn't really rebel in the ways a lot of other people did. I, I went in a very different different direction. I mean, that's what you do, right? I mean, you're going to rebel to the opposite of, yeah. of your upbringing to try to find yourself. And I'm actually really grateful I did that. Um, because I lost a lot of arguments, right? So I, I thought that I could talk my way through different things. And ugh, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of foundation to the conservative arguments back then. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I lost a lot of them. But anyway, yeah, you know, I think that um, having a positive influence at home is really important. And I realized that obviously at the moment nowadays, that's something that's missing a little bit, but that's obviously, I think we'll save that for another podcast another time. But um, 
influences as you were growing up? You've, you you mentioned your mum and your stepfather and stuff. What sort of things were they sort of influencing you, you with? And and did you sort of still have that rebellious streak growing up a little bit, or, or how did that work out? Well, so there's a lot of things. So most of what shaped me was me wanting to be viewed in a positive light with anybody who was surrounding me. So that that's one of those, Robin Williams is a great person to look to because you look at him and you say, how in the hell could that guy suffer from depression, mm. right? He's the happiest, most outgoing person in the world. But, but people who suffer from depression, their whole existence is to try to make other people not feel like they do. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of that growing up where I just wanted to have everybody happy, smiling, again, very optimistic, you know, very inspirational. Man, that's been that's been my bag of tricks since I was, again, knee high to a grasshopper. That's always been the way that I've always wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with your with your family and stuff, what did they did they kind of influence you on what you were wanting to do as when you grew up? What did you know, your career and stuff like that? How did that? Well, man, this has been and I, I don't have time to go through all of us, dude. So I'll give you the cliff notes version, the short version. My stepdad did radio when he was in the army. And so he always had wanted to be in the radio. He's he had an unbelievable voice like like caramel on ice cream. I mean, that's that was his voice it was so beautiful. And my high school had a radio station. And so at 13 years old, I was Madman Matt Halloran and I had a radio show. And I never thought in my whole life, mostly because everybody told me, Steve, you're, you can't get a career. Like the, this industry's dying, yeah. right? And so um, I remember after I got off my first show, I ran over to Chris, Chris, um, Chris was her name. Um, and uh, Kirkpatrick was her last name. And I said, Chris, uh, I call her Mrs. Kirkpatrick because obviously I'm not going to call the teacher Chris. And I said, you know, hey, I want to be a radio guy. This is what I want to do. And she just laughed and she said, you're not going to make a living with that. And so all sorts of crazy stuff happened throughout life. Uh, and then when I met my partner, Kirk Lowe, with, with that we now own Proudmouth together, um, we had decided that we wanted to try to do something in our industry at the time, which was just financial services, something fundamentally unique and different. And I'm like, let's do podcasting, dude. Let's, why don't we become the first podcasting company that really works with advisors? And we are, and you know, we've done over 3000 podcasts for our clients on about 35,000 social media posts, but it all started with Kirk and I behind the microphone and I've got behind the microphone again, Steve. And I was like, I'm home. Like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And man, I love this more than I should. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you, so when you were the DJ at school, what sort of music did you play? Heavy metal, dude. So <laughs> the funny thing was, is I played heavy metal. It was a heavy metal show. I wasn't a huge heavy metal fan, but like this was like Iron Maiden, Megadeth time, early Metallica, um, you know, later stuff like Kiss and, and, and those sorts of bands that, you know, I, I'm luckily that I think every listener is going to know who most of those people are. Um, but most of them had a lot of swear words. And this was a high school public radio station. So I couldn't play. In fact, this is so long ago that we had these things called carts, right. which looked like an eight track that had the singles on it. So I was only, I had like, I had like 10 songs that I could play. And so I just played them over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and I would practice my, you know, my transitions and, you know, my radio voice. And uh, man, it was, it was so much fun. Oh, eight tracks. That brings back memories. I remember my, my dad had an eight track in his car and, um, 
the amount of journeys, the amount of our time, our time that I've listened to Don Williams, Merle Haggard, Charlie Pride. This is in the 70s. Obviously, he was a big country and Western fan. Um, interestingly, though, um, you didn't you you so you, you you came out of school. And did you go straight? In, did you go into the Navy? Yeah. So wh- why why the Navy? What was that all about? Well, so <clears throat> I didn't do great in school. Right. So my focus in high school was girls, not grades. And so I took classes where the hot girls were. And, uh, and the problem was, is most of the hot girls were really smart, dude. And so I like didn't do very well in school. And so in my physics, physics class, my junior year, a, a, a recruiter came in. I don't even know if they're allowed to do this anymore, but a recruiter came in and said, we have this new program. It's called nuclear power. And we're looking for people to to be in this program. And I was like, man, I could be on a submarine or I could be on an aircraft carrier or see the world. I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. And so my junior year of high school, I took the test. It's called the ASVAB and I scored unbelievably well. First time I ever was successful on a test and I got into this program and I was over the moon, dude. I was like, oh my God, you know, this is going to be great. And then when I got to boot camp. Uh, there's something called delayed entry processing, which is what you do before you go, which they give you all the physicals and stuff like that, cough, whatever you have to do. And I took a colorblind test and I knew I was colorblind. They didn't know I was colorblind. And I found I was supposed to go into electronics, which you can't be colorblind, dude. Like that's like the scariest thing in the world. Nuking, working on a nuke reactor and being colorblind is like, that's really dumb. So all of my plans got got cut, but I had signed the contract. So I still had to go in for four years. So I went in unrated, which is like, that's what prisoners do. Like if you know, you're, you're standing up in front of a judge, Steve, and they say, you can either join the Navy or go to jail to join the Navy. They were in my program. Right. So these, I was, it was really, really eye-opening. Um, but I did the same thing. I mean, this is the traveling optimist podcast, right, brother? I mean, I looked at it as, Okay, I could do one of two things. I could wallow, right? And just have a terrible four years, or I could do whatever I possibly could to make the absolute best out of the situation. And I did. Yeah. And it was life-changing and wonderfully remarkable. So where did you go? What 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 happened in those four years? So I got to my ship. So after boot camp, I got to my ship. And two weeks after that, we deployed out to the first Gulf War. So um, we, I was on an ammunition replenishment ship, which is a very dangerous place to be in a war. And so we spent the you know first probably yearish. I was Persian Gulfish. Uh, so we were doing uh, basically delivering bombs that were dropped on people. Um, and uh, and then we did a. I spent some time in Scotland did a couple of med cruises. We went through the Suez Canal. Um, wow. it, it was it was it was really amazing, dude. Yeah, yeah. So you could have stayed on for four, for, for longer than four years? Or did you was that not part of the plan, really? Well, it was part of the plan. Uh, this this. So here, very, very quick story. When I was, um, I was one of the only people who didn't get seasick. All right. And I don't know why it's a genetic anomaly or I don't know what the hell it is or whatever. 
Um, so every time we would get in rough seas, I, I like had to stand every watch, dude. And it's tiring uh, because, I mean, you're, I, I would get like two, three hours of sleep a night because I was one of the only people who could stand these specific watches. And one of them was called sounding and security. So what that was, was I would go around the ship and I had this little, looked like a fishing pole, but it had a plumb bob on the end of it. And I'd lower it down into these things. They're, they're the bilges so that we would know uh, where the water was so that we wouldn't flip the ship over, right? Really important job. But I'd have to be in this huge orange suit and I'd click myself into this this safety line, right? And what happened was, is when I was walking to the forward part of the ship, the forecastle, the wind was hitting me in the face, like waves were, you know, I'm like holding on for dear life sort of things. Because, you know, you crash, people don't understand that that water is going over the ship. I was walking on the deck at that time. Uh, mind you, that was quite cold, but I loved it. And again, I'm ridiculously optimistic. And so I just, I, I had fun with it. And so what I did was when I would come back from the going to the aft part of the ship, I would jump just a little bit and the wind and the waves would catch me and push me. And it was just so much fun, which became a foundational philosophy for my life, which is I can either go ahead and face the wind and not get very far and get very tired and frustrated, or I can put the wind to my back and see where the wind takes me and trust the wind. Now you can insert whatever you want in for the wind, but I call it the wind, right? And that's what I did, dude. And that's what allowed me to, uh, the wind would blow me in a direction. I'd look around and say, okay, well, I have three options here. The whistle is where the wind took, take me, took me. Where do I want to go from here? And as crazy as it sounds, I've lived my whole life by that. Yeah, that is my whole life philosophy. And the wind has never blown me in the wrong direction. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's like an instinct thing, isn't it really? Yep. Yeah. So when you left the Navy, okay, you came back and you decided to put your thinking cap on and, and your educational cap on, right? So I looked at your CV. Yeah. And I'm thinking, whoa, because in the, earlier in the conversation, literally a few minutes ago, you said you, you weren't you weren't, it was, it was girls rather than grades and stuff. But then you came back out of the Navy and thought, I need to do something with my grades and let's, let's get to it. So what, what happened after the Navy? You went into, you went to university or college or something? I did. So I went to community college, which is a two-year program. Cause I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be successful going right into school. And all of a sudden, Steve, I had gotten my academic footing. And I think a lot of that really was what I was studying. So I, I got my undergraduate degree in, in applied ethics, which is a philosophy degree. And my minor was in communications. And my grandfather told me before he passed, those were the two most unemployable career <laughs> uh, choices or education choices I could have made. But I, le I learned philosophy. I learned how to think. Uh, and not only did I learn how to think, I learned how to argue. I learned how to communicate. And I learned how to be wrong. Yeah. And brother, if there was one gift that I could give to everybody listening to this is realizing what a wonderful thing being wrong is yeah. and changing your mind. Yeah. And you can't study philosophy and, and ethics, which is the study of what is right. Um, that's when you realize that you're arguing a point that is not right from an ethical perspective, it changes how you look at the world and how you look at information coming in and, and how you communicate. And I wish more people had the chance to truly study philosophy mm. because it would, I think our world would be very, very different, especially here in the States because people talk at each other here. They don't talk to each other. 
Yeah, you, you, you're not you're not allowed to really have an opinion on something, and you know it's a, which is a bit of a shame. But with that, with the process of you know, you you get the prospectus for the college. Why did you choose applied ethics? So I my my associate's degree is in regular philosophy, and I had to take a human, I don't know, humanities course, and I didn't want to take history because right. I'm not good at memorization and regurgitation. That's just not how my brain works. And I signed up and his name is Bob Badger. I, I mean, I remember like this was, in fact, this gentleman just passed away like a year ago. Right. So I met with the, this and it was um, introduction to philosophy. And I remember sitting in the class and hearing the questions that he was asking us that this is what you were going to learn. And I thought to myself, these are like, the deepest questions in the world, man. Yeah. Like I'm going to be able to answer what is truth, what is reality, what is life, what is you know what is good, what is evil. I I mean, and and be able to answer those not just for myself, but be able to have the foundation to support that. Mm. Just was such an eye opening thing for me. And then the university that I went to, Western Michigan University, which is actually in Kalamazoo, where I still live today. Um, they had one of the only biomedical ethics programs in the nation. And so I was like, that medical ethics, I'm, I'm in, let's see what happens. Um, and so that, that's what I graduated with was biomedical ethics was my focus. That is so cool because actually, to be fair, coming out of a career or job and going back into education is actually quite difficult. Um, and because it's a different way of, of working isn't it it's you know and 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 yeah it's almost like you're having to relearn to learn um i i don't think i ever learned how to learn brother that was the problem and that's why i chose the path that i had yeah. and when i was in the navy i had realized that it was about energy focus and attention yeah and with the energy focus and attention i could really do anything i wanted i just needed to put that energy behind it and yes. I, I, I found when I was in the service that when I did, so this is going to be meaningless to most people because they don't understand the Navy, but so I, I went from E1 to E5 in three years, which is, that's not normal. Usually takes people six to eight years to get to E5. And I was actually meritoriously advanced by my captain. Uh, he said, you should be an E5. So I went into middle management at 21 years old. I got my enlisted surface warfare specialist, which means I knew every single solitary ship's system so that if if we were in a bad situation and somebody died, I could do their job, like everybody's job on the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, most people don't get that within their first enlistment. I got a Navy Achievement Medal uh, because my boss ended up having a nervous breakdown. And at 19 years old, I ran the entire administrative department of a ship. So when you look at, and again, it's the making lemonade out of lemons, bad stuff happened. And I, instead of focusing on it and wallowing in the pity that I could have had, right? Or said, oh, I can't do this. It's like, you know what? Screw it. Let's see if I can do this. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, and then I did the same thing in school was I was like, okay, I didn't, I wasn't good in high school, primary school how can i get good now and it was one finding something i was passionate about studying about and then two just putting the energy focus and attention on it yeah absolutely yeah finding that passion and also i think it's a, there are a lot of us that out there me included who are uh, late bloomers mm. um i'm i'm a lot later than some people 
yeah. <laughs> but you know it's uh, it, we're on we're on the we're on this earth you know a reasonable amount of time there's no rush is there sometimes there's and not I, I think people put so much pressure on themselves man i agree i agree and um i think that people would be in a, a much healthier mindset position i think if they just took a step back and took a breath and said actually do you know what i don't need to get a job immediately after university i'm going to take a year out and go and you know go and travel you know see the world do whatever you know come back for after a couple of years and then float in and i think i think businesses actually really appreciate that sort of life experience now don't they we do uh you know that's one of the greatest things about owning a company now that grows has grown as quickly as we're at like 22 employees now and we we're an entirely virtual company and we've just hired uh we had a hired a gentleman who lived in south africa we have another person who lives in Chile, uh, another person who uh, just came from, uh, I think, St. Lucian uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, we've got a, a lot. We got three people in the States, uh, 10, 15 people in Canada. And then we've got a lady who's our graphic designer who works in Indonesia. And we love the fact that all of these people are coming into our organization with different cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, educational backgrounds. And it forces us to constantly look at what we're doing in in looking at it in a different way steve mm. that's like that's a huge gift i think oh absolutely i think it's um it's a really strong suit of playing cards you've got in your in your hand there i think actually it's only going to that's only going to be proved beneficial you know throughout the, the the time that you're you're in business yeah. um you're a certified you're a qualified life coach that's correct Right. So how how did you get into the marketing side of things? What drew you into that? Because this is really this is really interesting for me because I like to see what sort of threads mm -hmm. happened to get you down into this this path, if you see what I mean. What happened was uh, I got an internship uh, in biomedical ethics in a hospital system in Omaha, Nebraska. So we moved from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I just married my wife and we got to Omaha. And um, it was a very difficult job, Steve, because everybody I worked with was either dying or dead. Mm -hmm. And then I had to talk to the families. That was part of my job. And so my beeper, beepers, <laughs> I remember how long those were, my beeper would go off and I would have to drive as quickly as I possibly could to one of these five hospitals that were in the greater Nebraska area. And I would have to sit down with a family and most of the people, they were brain dead, basically, mostly car accidents, motorcycle accidents. And I would have to translate because somebody had to make a decision, right? And um, I used to come home crying all the time. I have no problem with crying, by the way. And I might cry on this podcast. I'm just telling you that right now. It depends on what buttons you push, brother. Um, <laughs> Kelly got me a couple of times. I'm like, dude, I don't know about that. Anyway, so, um, so I would cry on the way home. And my wife was like, you know, brand new married. Right. All of a sudden, this guy that she's married is bawling all the time because I had to get rid of this. I mean, it's so heavy. We ended up working in a place called Boys Town. And Boys Town in Omaha is was created in the early 1900s by a guy named Father Flanagan. And it's a boys' home for at-risk boys and girls. Um, we lived there for five years and lived in a house with eight kids at a time and 36 in total. And I thought I wanted to be a therapist. So I went to graduate school later in life um, and I got my master's degree as, as a therapist and then a graduate certificate as a life coach. And my last class, Steve, with my mentor, 
I, I just finished my thesis and my thesis was reduction of halluc auditory hallucinations in people who suffer from schizophrenia. So I had this idea technique that I wanted to try to go to PhD for, which would have whatever. I, and I didn't choose that path. But anyway, he told me, dude, you're going to be a terrible therapist. And I'm like, dude, why didn't you tell me that $60,000 ago? He said, you're, you need to be a life coach. So I was like, yeah, screw you. I don't know what you mean. So I, I actually opened, hung my shingle as a therapist and I, I was terrible. I was so bad at it. I just, I had no patience for people. People would come to me and they would say, Matt, I have this issue. I tell them what they needed to do to fix it. They wouldn't do it. They just wanted to wallow in their own pity. And I'm like, screw this. I can't do this. So I typed into the computer life coach into one of those old, you know, like um, Indeed's or, or one of those things, careerbuilder.com. And two things came up. One was something called, um, it, was a, it was a franchise coaching company that you had to give them 250 grand and I was broke as hell. So that wasn't going to happen. And the other one was to work for this guy in Omaha who I didn't know anything about, this guy named Ron Carson, who ended up becoming a huge mentor of mine and changing my life. Um, and that's how I got into consulting, which then turned into me hanging my own shingle after I left there, after I published a book and created a bunch of stuff, hung my own shingle as a consultant. And then I met Kirk. So the full circle to what I was talking about when I, when I met my business partner earlier, him and I are sitting in Arizona and he's a marketing and branding genius. This guy is a genius. My partner is a genius. I'm not burdened with genius. All right. This guy is so smart. He's unbelievable. He's a great human being. I love this guy. And we're sitting down. First time we sat down ever, we talked a little bit online. Um, and, and he said, we should, we should find a way to work together. I'm like, absolutely. There's something here. And we decided at that point that we needed to do for our clients instead of telling them what to do. Because Steve, here's what happens, dude. They're assholes, right? They ask you for, their, for your advice. You give them proven techniques on what they need to do. They don't take the advice and then they blame you for the lack of results. And we're like, let's just cut out all of that stuff. Let's just do it for them. And so I was always getting so many questions about marketing from my, my coaching clients, my business coaching clients. Yeah. And brother, I didn't have answers. And then I meet this guy and now we have this marketing solution that we're very, very proud of. We're not what we're necessarily going to talk about on the show, but that's, that's how I got into marketing. I have always found that I need to find somebody to hitch my wagon to, all right? There's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody stronger, better, faster, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So early on, it was Ron Carson, right? Who is billionaire now. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. He changes people's lives. He's a remarkable human being. And then I, then I was like, okay, well, I learned as much as I could from him. So I went out on my own. I did really well for about three and a half, four years. And then I met Kirk and I was like, aha, I'm gonna hitch my wagon to this brother. And then I did, and now I've accelerated my life into, I don't know, this craziness that's my life now. That's amazing. So that journey to get to Boys Town, which ultimately led you to read a newspaper and find, or look at the internet and, and find a, an advert from Ron Carson. So it's just incredible. I love it. I really do. I just find those thin threads, those serendipitous moments just what is just so incredible about life and um but po podcasts in general i mean I, I know you you're very experienced in this in this side they're they're reasonably new to, well they're very new to me but they're not reasonably new are they in the whole scheme of things because people have been doing this for a number of years 
they have when radio started dying, which was probably about 15, 17 years ago here in the States. Now there's still a strong radio presence, but everything became automated, right? The automatic DJs, automatic song selection, all of that. People who were personalities just missed being behind the microphone. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about podcasting is it's a low barrier to entry. Yeah. So my setup, just very quickly, this microphone, now this is a better microphone than we are. You can get a microphone just like this, which is a directional microphone, condenser directional microphone for 20 bucks. Mm. You plug it into your freaking computer. You go to riverside.fm or you go to, um, you know, spit stitcher, any of these programs, Zencaster, you're in, bam, your podcast, dude. Like, I mean, you can have, you can record today and release today. Yeah. And we believe that experts specifically have a professional duty to educate the general public. And we're just the medium in which they do it because most of them talk for a living. Mm-hmm. Most of them kind of suck on video, dude. I'm not trying to be mean, but they either, they've never been trained, right? There's technique involved with video. They're not actors. Um, but you don't have to have that with podcasts. Like right now, you know, we're, we're recording this on zoom and there is video involved. Um, but we're really focused on just the voice. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 it's the audio for me, which is really the, the, the key thing. And I, I know that people do, do use their video and promote it, their, their podcast with the video and stuff like that. You know, I haven't quite got the technology around, uh, sorted out for that, but that's not why I started a podcast, you know? Right. So that, that for me, it's not, it's not a, a key element. Um, but why, why is, why is podcasting to you? What, what's so special about it for you? It's intimate, man. That this, this is the thing that people don't understand. It, 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 so you're talking about the thread, right? Mm. So my master's thesis was on the reduction of auditory hallucinations and schizophrenics. And what I had to learn there is what part of the brain through functional MRIs were hyperactive in people who suffer from schizophrenia is called the Broca's area. And what a lot of people don't understand is Broca's area. If you stuck your finger just in your ear a little farther than you're supposed to, you're touching the freaking Broca's area. Are we are so auditorially focused, auditorily focused as human beings, right? And people listen to podcasts in their quiet time. So this is where business owners, I think they're just failing miserably because I ask people this question all the time, which is when is the last time that your ideal prospect invited you into their home, into their quiet time? And the answer is never, dude, unless you're creepy, right? And so we get past the creepiness and people opt in to listening to your podcast and all of a sudden you're in their home, you're in their ear and they want to learn. People listen to podcasts just like yours, Steve, to learn something new. And I I hope that I'm helping with that. Um, But that's the goal of a podcast. And that's why I think it's so powerful and so intimate. And lastly, it's still in its infancy, Mm. right? They upload, they, as in the world, uploads like a billion hours of video a month. It's crazy. I don't even know what the number is. Podcast isn't even a million yet. Oh, wow. A million versus a billion. But nobody ever says to you, Steve, well, there's too many YouTube videos. But I do hear as a person who sells podcasting for a living, oh, there's too many podcasts. Are you kidding me? Like, uh, in your your city alone, there may be three, right? And, you know, we used to have more channels on the TV in your local area than three. So Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Do you think that um, 
in your on a, if you're a, on a podcast and you're vulnerable and open do, do you from a business perspective do you find is that a positive or is that a negative i i believe the world is changing steve I think that the bravado that business owners used to think they had to maintain is people just don't like it anymore, mm. right? Um, people want to buy you. They want a relationship with you. They want to know who you are before they'll ever do business. And the way that we teach marketing now is it's the opt-in aspect. Like my ideal clients opt into first off listening to our podcast or following me on social media. And then when they're ready, so I don't have to sell. This is like the biggest gift in the world as far as I'm concerned. I don't sell anybody anything because people call me and say, I'm ready to go because I have so much social proof from 300 plus podcasts um, that we've just done for our own brand, plus the social media, plus the videos that I shoot, plus the fact that, dude, I'll give just about anybody time. Right. You want to sit on, you want to take 15, 20 minutes, even 30 minutes with me and ask me questions. All right. Just put it on my calendar. Yeah. Right. Because my goal is to help people rise above the noise so they can be their own loud. And we believe that podcasting is the easiest way to achieve that. But business owners who are more vulnerable on social and using this or even a video as a medium, that's where you're going to start getting more and more raving fans instead of you having to sell a skeptic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, because it gives people a proper picture of of you uh, as a human being, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's much more real. I think it's way more real. I agree. I think that, that and I think that's where you, your niche is is just going to win big time. I really feel that. And I, and and be your own loud is such a great tag. I love it. I really do. Um, in your conversation with Kelly. You talked about something that really struck a chord with me, and this is what prompted me to message Kelly and you on on um, on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, by the way, I think is inc an incredible resource. Yeah, you know, it's just great. It's so positive. I love it. It's really, you know, a lot of social media out there is is very negative led, yeah. um, but LinkedIn is is just so positive. I love it. It's fantastic. Anyway, um, you you were talking about there's a seat at the table for everybody and not everybody's taking the seat. They're scrambling around on the floor for the crumbs when all they need to do is look up, take a step and just get on the, uh, at the seat. And I wanted to sort of uh, ask you if you wouldn't mind just to relay that, that little sort of story um, to my, my listeners and then I want to come back to you with a, a thought that I had about it just to kind of extend it or embellish that, that, um, that theory. I, I believe that I think it's a worthiness factor. I think that there are many people who don't think they're worthy enough to sit at the table. And when I refer to sitting at the table, it really is an abundance mindset, right? The idea of scarcity and abundance is something that we've heard in pop psychology, life coaching for a long time, Tony Robbins, Oprah, everybody, Brene Brown. But it really came all the way back to Socrates, which is hysterical, Socrates and Plato, which was my educational foundation, because they talked about that all the time. 
right? That there's more than enough to go around. And unfortunately, there are people who don't want you to know that, Steve, because they want a larger piece of the pie. And I say, screw them, because you can sit at the freaking table and you can be unapologetically you and be as successful as you want to be. Now, I know, I know that as a straight white American man that I have had humongous leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of other people who live in my country and who live all over the world. I know that I have privilege that I don't even know the level of privilege, but at least I'm starting to open my eyes to it. The people who have started way like back at the, you know, the goal line to use a, a football soccer reference. Cause I, you, you probably, resonate with that more than American football. But anyway, so, you know, you started the, you know, the, the goal line, you know, I'm at, I'm at the 50, right. I'm at the midline before a lot of people ever start, but that doesn't mean that the people back here still can't live in an abundance mindset. And when you just open your eyes and look around and realize that you don't have to keep fighting, literally fighting people for the scraps that are falling, that there's so many seats at this table. In fact, Steve, the table's huge, man. It's freaking huge. And when you get to the table, 90% of those people are going to be happier than hell you're there. Mm. And that's where I think a lot of people don't get it. They think that they're going to get to the table and then it's going to be all cutthroaty and mean and businessy. But in my experience, and with a lot of people who I'm starting to get to know through our new podcast, the Be Your Own Loud podcast, and just some life changes that I've made, is it doesn't matter who you are. We're just so damn happy that you realize that you can sit at the table mm-hmm. and that there's more than enough to go around. I agree. And I, 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 I re- that resonated with me so much. And then it got me thinking um, about it a little bit deeper because I was thinking, you know, but aren't we already born with a seat at the table? Aren't we already at the seat? But life kind of gets in the way a little bit and it, somebody nudges you a little bit and you, you fall off that and you've got to climb back on again. So my, my thought was that, first of all, just being here, you know, we've already won the lottery. I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk who said that it was like, there's four trillion to one chances of us being here, you know, um, which is incredible. And so, A, make the most of it. Uh, but B, you know, um, uh, when we're born, we've, we've already got a seat at the table and it's kind of an extension of what you were saying in terms of the fact that I think that um, most people don't realize that they've got a seat at the table. And I, I kind of, it just got me thinking very deeply about it, which is not unheard of, but <laughs> quite, quite infrequent. And I just wondered what your thoughts were with that. So you're, you're saying that actually, you know, you, you build up to get to the seat at the table. I'm sort of saying the opposite. What, what do you think? I think it's a very interesting perspective. Um, I think most people remove themselves from the ability to sit at the table. So when, if you are born and you are at the table, um, I think most of the time it isn't somebody pushing you out of the table. I think you're doing it to yourself. And that's part of growing up, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that you can always have a seat at the table because one, the table changes. Right. I mean, the table that I was sitting at in the Navy is very different than the table that I'm sitting in financial services and and now to all experts all over the world. Right. I'm sitting at a totally different table. But my level of comfort, because I remember the first time I sat at the table and I tell you right when it was. So I'm I'm a flying on Ron Carson's personal jet right to 
to Arizona to do a speaking engagement with him. We get out of the jet into a limo, right? Drive to the venue. Everybody's doting all over us and everything like that. I get up on stage. I do my show. Ron does his. Then we had the other partners. His name is Steve Sandusky, an amazing presenter. Steve did his show. Ron did the closing act. Then we left. We got dinner, which was more money than I could have ever spent in my life. Got on the jet and I flew back to Omaha. This was all in one day. And I thought to myself, I grew up poor as poor can be. And I'm sitting at the table. Now I was yeah, sitting at yeah. a table that I was not qualified, Steve, to sit at. I was not a financial advisor. I'd never made millions and millions of dollars, but I had something yeah. that made me worthy to sit at the table. And once I had the epiphany, that's where I sat at the table. And then I started realizing everywhere I went career-wise, that there were other tables. And as long as I gave myself permission to sit at the table, I got it. Because here's, here's my final thought on that. People ask me all the time, how did you get that person on your show? Or, or, or how did you do that? And I said, well, I asked. Hmm. Like, but, but, you know, who are you to ask? I'm sitting at the table, yeah. right? I, I mean, I, I've asked unreasonable people to be on my show. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the fun part, Steve. Some of them have said no. Yeah. Now, is that, is that a no forever? I don't think so. But some crazy bald guy with a big gray beard just called them and asked them to be on a show that they've never heard of. So the next time I call, after we've done another 300 episodes, we have 100,000 listeners, things change. And mm -hmm. so that's the power of sitting at the table. Are you born with it? I think we're born with everything, but it just takes us a lot longer. Some of us like me to realize all of the things that were given to me at birth. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's also, it's that sense of worth, isn't it? I think, you know, cause if going by what you just said, if I'm on a, a private jet with a, one of the planet's best, you know, life coaches, speakers, and I'm doing a, a set on his show, First of all, you, I would be thinking I'm, I would, unfortunately, I would be comparing myself and I'd be thinking imposter syndrome straight away. So how did you get over that? Um, or maybe you didn't have it, which is fantastic. Well, I, I don't, I, I had an epiphany really when I was working with these at-risk kids, right? So these kids didn't have dads. So I had this unbelievable opportunity to be the father to 36 kids who didn't have a dad. Cause I didn't grow up with a dad either. I my, my dad was a schmuck. Right. And so I, the, 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 me feeling comfortable in my skin, Steve, that's when that happened. And mm -hmm. so, so now if there's adoration, notoriety, opportunity, I, I've just realized that I'm going to be unapologetically Matt Halloran because as you know, Oscar Wilde said, um, well, you got to be yourself because everybody else is taken. And that has become much more of a mantra for me now because it just, why not man? Mm. Right. It's why not just be you? I, I, there's stuff about myself. I freaking hate dude. I, I don't say hate actually. There's stuff I'd like to change. Right. Like, yeah. COVID, dude, I put on all sorts of weight. And I'd love to, you know, be able to just slough that off really super fast. But, you know, 
but I'm still okay with it because that's part of me, right? That level of self-acceptance, I believe, is something that you work towards. Mm. Uh, but once you get it, it's not always there. And you have to keep reminding yourself. And, dude, I'm going to get back to the – I love the name of your show. You know, it, it's it's be traveling optimist. You have to be optimistic, right? It, because it's a choice, in my opinion. All of this, everything that I've said is a conscious choice that I've made in order to live the life that I've wanted to live. I choose to look at the optimistic side of absolutely everything I possibly can. Mm. Because you know what? I've done the other stuff and it sucks. Mm. Yeah. It's gray and yucky and dirty and smelly and I feel like crap and I don't want, I, we're on this planet. I'm not given tomorrow, brother. No. <laughs> Today's a gift, man. I'm serious. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I think of is, holy crap, I got another day. Okay, let's go. Right? Nobody thinks like, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people think like that. They're like, oh, this is just, this is just my life. No, this is a freaking gift. Yeah, every yeah. day, every breath, every time meeting guys like you, it's a gift. And you better take that gift and accept it and be happy that you have it. Because you know what? It can be taken away super fast. Is that what you're most grateful for in life then? By your family and, and, and children? Ab absolutely. I mean, there, there is no, there isn't anything that I am more grateful for because it makes me a better husband. It makes me a better father. It makes me a better business partner. It makes me a better son. Um, because when everybody else is cloud, so COVID is a perfect example, dude, talk about a cloud, mm. a cloud of horrible, terrifying negativity, health issues with people who I love. Mm. Right. And I could have let that absolutely, and it did to a lot of people, man. Mm. It really, really hurt a lot of people. Mm. How, how did, apart from your weight, how did COVID affect you at work and at home and stuff? Uh, well, my wife's a teacher. And so that was horrible uh, because, you know, they kept throwing her back in the classroom and taking her out of the classroom and, you know, not mandating masks and mandating masks. And, and my wife is a biology teacher. She's a scientist. So she understands virology and was like, nobody is listening to the people who actually understand what's going on, especially here in the States. Um, it was my kids didn't have a senior year. Yeah. My kids were home. The whole time. Now I work virtually. I've worked from home for about eight years now. So, uh, but dude, I used to speak once a month. I would be on the road doing a show, meeting new people, shaking hands, kissing babies. I freaking miss that. Yeah. Um, so I just turned that energy into this and, and just, we got, we got hardcore into just is doing as many podcasts as we can to yeah. meet as many people as we can. Would you go back to the old normal? No, um, I don't think you can. I think that, I think that's part of sitting at the table, dude, is you need to realize that the seat might not change, but the scenery does. Yeah. And if you don't change with the scenery, then you, then you're going to fall off that chair again. Mm. And I don't want to lose the seat at the table. So I'm going to do whatever I can to be flexible and I'm going to do whatever I can to accept new realities. I'm a philosophy major, dude. I studied freaking reality. Right. But you know, that's just part of the way I believe that you have to be flexible as a human, because the more rigid you are, the easier you are to break. Yeah. I don't want to sort of minimize the effects of COVID because, you know, people oh. have lost people and, you know, yes. I, I, I wouldn't know how to talk about something, you know, if that had happened, but um, 
for, for me, COVID has actually been a, a, a real opportunity um, to really kind of rethink about how things work in, in my life. And, um, and my, my, my wife is in education as well. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been really stressful and how, how we kind of manage that stress and, um, you know, work, work with that because the situation, you know, here in the UK, it's still, we're still locked down kind of, um, you know, for another three weeks, we were not going to sort of change anything until the 19th of July. Um, and so that there's, and, and if you extrapolate that out to every single family in the whole world, you can just imagine the whole level of stress and anxiety there's been. Um, but for me personally, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you um, if COVID hadn't happened. Um, you know, and the, the incredible people that I've met, you know, through the podcast, um, has been an absolute blessing and I'm so grateful for it. I really am. And all of you and all of the other guys that I've connected with have just, you know, really kept me in the game and kept me sane and stuff like that. Just some, you know, some stuff going on in the background work-wise that and business-wise that, you know, no one would have been able to ever plan for, but, you know, this is just a blessing, really. I'm so grateful. And, um, you know, looking back, I think actually this 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 opportunity could be the making of, of people. And I'm sure you've probably seen that in the, the financial services arena, particularly. We have, and and it's fast forwarded technological changes that our industry has had to make for make it for a really long time. But I think it's also changed experts too, because they realize that they have ways to get their voice out into the marketplace where they, they can be freed from the torment of sales, right? Mm -hmm. That's super important. But I studied Chinese, the language Chinese in, in college, and in crisis and opportunity are are actually a very, very, very similar, if not the exact same word, right? So I call it crisis-tunity, right? And so um, I think with every crisis there is opportunity, and and I want everybody listening to know that that COVID is horrible, it, and and I have close friends of mine who have long-term health effects from actually coming down with COVID nineteen my optimism coming out of it is not to mitigate the severity of it at all it's my life view mm. there have been unbelievable points in my life that i never even shared on a podcast or even talked about in person um that i still chose to be optimistic because again when you look at every day as a gift that gives you another chance to just do something yeah. something help somebody smile at a person you know wave somebody through in traffic say hi to the cashier give somebody a tip on the street over tip somebody who's serving you those little things dude are what more people need to realize that they have the power to change people's lives and it's not it doesn't have to be anything grand no it doesn't, but it starts a huge ripple effect, though, doesn't it? Because um, uh, last summer we 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 were part of a uh, a community uh, initiative to to help all of our vulnerable residents in our town, and so we volunteered to deliver prescription, you know, medicine and food mm -hmm. and stuff to them because they weren't allowed to come out. And then the ripple effect of that was, you know, other things as well, and you're meeting great people, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm. I'm meeting Matt Halloran from Kalamazoo. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I know. It's just that ripple effect. And if you do those kind things, it just has a massive effect on, and it, but it has an effect on people that you don't realize has an effect on. And I think as that's the one thing about podcasting. Well, and as long as you're okay with that, right? I, 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 I'm not looking at the long-term effects of every single solitary thing I do, right? I'm looking at it as, you know, this idea of trying to live in the present as much as possible. And do I know that there are ripple effects? I do, and I feel them, and I'm proud of those ripple effects. But I'm going to just focus on where I'm at right now with you. Kelly said this, and this guy's a genius. Those people don't know who Kelly Cardini says, please check him out, look at him. But one of the things that he said to me was, um, you know, Matt, you've got 100% of my focus right now. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, wow, what a powerful statement that is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I took that from him. And now every, every person's podcast that I'm on, every podcast that I'm on, I am trying to reduce every distraction I possibly can. Because before, I wasn't giving 100%. And that's another thing that I said on that podcast is I, I just, you can't phone it in, right? You, you have to give 100%. And, and even if you're given 80%, it's still 80%, man. And just try to do your best in what you do. And when somebody gives you the gift like you've given me today, I had to give you 100% because you're giving me an opportunity to talk to people who don't know who I am, right? Who, yeah don't live anywhere around me who aren't in industries that I've worked with. And I got a chance to, to hang out and meet you, which I'm eternally grateful for. So I, I can't thank you enough for giving me this opportunity, Steve. No, I may. It's, it's absolutely my pleasure. It's really my honor. And um, I think living in the moment and giving it, you know, giving people a hundred percent of your attention is, is really important. And that's, I think I've been particularly guilty of not doing that in the past. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm the optimist here. I, I, I tend to not focus on the past too much, really, to be honest with you, unless I'm reflecting back and thinking how far I've come, you know, that's totally different, but then, you know, that's where a, a good coach comes in, um, you know, like you and you set people back onto the right track in terms of reflection. But, um, I wanted to ask one last question because, you know, you've got I, your, your children probably are similar ages to mine. And you said that they they missed their senior year last year, so they would they they must have been sixteen. Uh, no, so they're they're eight. They just turned eighteen, so they 18. would have graduated from high school. Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. So that's the that's similar to our A level uh, lessons here. So I've got my youngest daughter's seventeen, so she's doing her first year of A levels uh, exams now, and she's got her last year next year. My other daughter's in university. What? And I know this is going to sound, I don't want this to sound contrite because you are a life coach and you're very experienced. And 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 I, I can't imagine what it's like being a life coach and having children and not and resisting the urge to give them advice. But if you were in a classroom of children, what would you what what were the key things that you would ask them to consider as they go through their lives in terms of advice? So my kids have a, we have a family motto and that's as far as I was allowed to life coach my children. <laughs> uh, cause my wife and my kids will say, I need dad, Matt, right now. I, I don't need coach Matt. So I really still appreciate that. Um, but for, for, since I have boys, the idea was, is, is our family motto is be the better man. Right? So when I'm speaking to younger people, I still think that that's the best piece of advice, because if consciously 
you try not to outdo somebody, but you consistently try to do the right thing and have that be top of mind. That's when the world can change. That's not be the better you so that you're, you know, competing, which, you know, competition is great. My kids were both competitive swimmers. Yes, well, they wanted to beat the person next to them. But the funny thing was, is before they got on the blocks, they were super friendly because they were trying to be a good person, right? And then when they, they, when they raced, they wanted to kill them. <laughs> then they got out of the water and they hugged people, right? I mean, and I think that that's the sort of stuff that a lot of people don't realize that, that if you keep that top of mind, you keep the be the better man top of mind that when you're in difficult situations that you're going to err on the side that is going to make society better mm. and make it worse and make those right choices which yeah. links us right back to those right choices that you made as a as a, an eight or nine year old with your mom yeah absolutely 100 percent. matt thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it i appreciate you having me here brother and uh, I, I really look forward to uh, connecting with you again uh, and more and and hearing, you know, more about your success at, at, um, at Proudmouth. And, and yeah, definitely I'll, uh, I'll be hashtagging be your own loud a lot more. We really appreciate that, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, everybody, I want to thank you very much for listening to this recording. Listen, you should probably follow Steve on LinkedIn. We'll make sure that we have those in the summary and the show notes. And you know what? What the heck? Why don't you follow me too, just in case you haven't followed me yet on LinkedIn. But I want to thank Steve very much for having a great interview. Uh, he's a wonderful interviewer. Please make sure you subscribe to his podcast. He is interviewing some really people that are phenomenal, great for you to learn from, and great for you to help out another podcaster get their voice out in the marketplace. Thank you very much, everybody. And we'll see you on the other side of the mic very soon. Thank you for listening to Be Your Own Loud, where we reverse engineer success to help you accelerate your influence and break free from the torment of sales. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to our podcast, share with others in your company or profession, follow us on social media. This podcast is brought to you by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. Visit us at Proudmouth.com and join our Influence Accelerator Academy for free to enhance your marketing mindset and know-how.